Welcome, I'm Ruth Frenger, founder of Conscious Leaders. Now this podcast aims to change the world of work one honest conversation at a time. And I hope you enjoy these conversations. They're with proven people leaders running highly successful businesses. So I hope you gain something from their philosophy and their practice. Now, if you're interested in developing your leadership skills further, I've digested the top traits and behaviors of the best people leaders I can find into a book. It's called Next Level Leadership, Nine Lessons from Conscious Leaders. To order your copy, visit consciousleaders.org.uk forward slash book. And you can also subscribe there to my bi-weekly newsletter where I share free content, including practical tools to help leaders move from good to great. Now this month, I have the pleasure of sharing with you my interview with Adam Healy. Adam is really open about his mental health journey, which includes bipolar disorder, depression, and alcoholism. And he intertwines this story with his leadership journey. So it's really powerful. I started by asking him just how he got to where he is now. I always think my life was quite standard, to be honest. So born into a normal household, went to a normal school, did pretty well. So I finished school with mainly grade A's and things like that. Went to uni, did a PhD, which maybe that's a slightly unusual thing, but at the time seemed important to me and I really enjoyed it. When I finished that, my professional life always seemed a little bit planned out. Um, My dad was a partner at one of the big firms and it always seemed to me that that's probably the direction I would go in. So I applied to a lot of big companies, got a job at Accenture or Anderson Consulting actually as it was at the time. I climbed the career ladder there made managing director Um, and then I kind of felt I had to make a decision do I stay or do I want to try something else if I stayed that would have been my job for life and I thought I ought to try something else so I had a little look around um, was accepted into the partnership at PwC so I I moved on to PwC stayed, stayed there for a couple of years then I had a my life took a little bit of a bump which I guess we'll talk about a little bit more in the podcast um took a bit of time out to look after myself. And now here I am working at Revelant mm. as the, the start of hopefully a new and fun chapter. Yeah, and, and I guess this this whole interview was kind of spawned by your post about your own kind of mental health journey. And I'll just, if you don't mind, I'll just read a little bit of your LinkedIn post because this kind of, yeah, this was what kind of brought us together for this interview. Um, so it says, a year ago today, I had my last drink and was admitted to the Priory for a mental health assessment and rehab. I'd finally accepted it and it was the only way forward. I'd agreed to two weeks, but it was nine before I was allowed home. I started a lifelong course of medication and a program of addiction recovery. I was diagnosed with type two bipolar disorder, cyclothymia and dependency on alcohol. The bipolar had become so bad that the doctor doctors certified it as a disability. And the post goes on and, <laughs> and you do a really detailed Blog, it's emotional to I, listen to it. Yeah? Yeah. Yeah, that, that's interesting. So tell me and tell the listeners about this journey because not many people will come out with with that kind of revealing a post about their own experience despite probably many people experiencing the same. So talk to me about the experience but also what it was like to share it. It's something I was, I've been aware of for a long time. And one of the things I've been doing through recovery is trying to work out when I think it actually started. Um, I talk in my post a lot about university and I'm sure when I look back to those times, I was definitely suffering from depression. Um, I actually remember my first passive 
suicidal thoughts and ideation and, and even passive attempts um, was while I was at university. And Can you explain what passive yeah, attempts passive, means, actually? It's an interesting concept, which again, I didn't really understand until this past year. But effectively, it means I didn't necessarily go out to cause myself damage. But had that happened, it wouldn't have bothered me. That's how I felt in my head at the time. So to give an example, I could have driven my car across a crossroads on a main road, for example, um, not knowing what would happen. And in my head thinking, well, if something did happen, that doesn't matter. So I was aware of that around the university time. Um, as I got into work, I think I had, it was, it was interesting, one of my bosses once described it as a roller coaster. And he actually said to me, you know, why does your life, why is working with you always such a roller coaster? And I think what he meant from that was there were times when I was brilliant and there were times where I was what I describe as the life and soul of the project or the night out or whatever it was. But then there's other times where I would be incredibly negative. Um, I remember the early days of my career, if someone proposed something new to me, my initial reaction would have been, why that was a problem or why it wouldn't work. Very, very negative. But on other days, I'd have been really excited about it and it would be really positive. So when I look back now, at the time I only saw the depression. Now I look back, I can see that it was this roller coaster. I can see the highs and I can see the lows. Now, when I, as I track that forward, I can start to see how the lows became deeper. Um, I had a particular trigger point in my own family where my, unfortunately, my, my father-in-law took his own life. And that was obviously the trigger of a very deep low. It was a very, very difficult time for me and the family and, and very upsetting. So that was very deep. But equally, when I look back at it, I can see the highs were getting more extreme as well. Um, emotionally, but also if I bring in the, the alcohol, which we, we maybe will talk about later, as that became more significant in my life, that was exacerbating the highs and the lows. So I guess that tracked through much of my career. And then unfortunately COVID came along. And I, I don't necessarily like talking about this too much because COVID was difficult for everyone. And I don't want it to seem like it was harder for me than it was for you or for the next person, because it wasn't. But what it did do in, in me is again, it exaggerated those two extremes. So being locked in my room, my study, was really bad for the, the lows. It made me really sad, really upset. I got into my own head and that was quite dangerous. Um, but then when we came out of lockdown, the reverse happened. I wanted to get out. I was the first person back to the office. I wanted to go for a drink. I wanted to get my teams in. I wanted to have dinners out. And I could see all of that sort of stuff building. So. I guess that's the, the sort of high level story that took me to this time last year. Then it went wrong. Um, it ultimately went wrong because the high became too high and I behaved in a way that was not appropriate. And that's incredibly upsetting to look back on, but it's what happened. And, and in reality, that led to the next part of the story, which is what's happened over the last year. And I wouldn't change that for anything. Um, it's been incredibly hard. And maybe rather than me talking, you can possibly delve into some of the things that you'd be interested to hear about. But that moment when I walked into a psychiatric hospital for the first time was horrifically difficult. 
And when I look back on it today, all I remember is, is darkness. Um, it happened to be a cold and miserable rainy day in March, but all I remember was dark, cold rain. Um, and then I remember the day I came out as almost the opposite. It was like the lights had come on. It was sunny. It was bright. It was cheery. Mm. Um, so it was a big transition, but it was horrific to get into. To get into. When I created the book, which pulls out the top traits and behaviours of podcast, podcast guests like you, one of the latter ones I talk about is vulnerability. It's, it's not as commonly shown, but it is the one I've seen that makes the massive, the most significant immediate ripple effect suddenly all the walls down and and that's powerful right to better to better transform someone's openness like in a in a few minutes yeah i think so um i i personally think vulnerability is really important because why would i open up to someone who wasn't willing to open up to me and yes it's like a how can i trust you if if you don't also have something to share because if I can't see you, why, do, why should I let you see Completely. me? Completely. Like, yeah. and, and actually, I know this is about me, I guess, rather than, than you. But one of the reasons I'm very happy opening up and talking to you is because you did the same. You know, your, your partner's obviously a very good friend of mine. And the two of you opened up very honestly about your story. And that, in many ways, gives me the confidence to do the same. And, and that makes it feel very comfortable to, to share this with you. You showed your vulnerability, and then I feel comfortable to show mine in return. Mm. There's uh, a word for it we talk about in, in mindfulness circles, which sounds like a really lame thing to say, but it's true. Um, they call it common humanity, okay. where you um, we connect because we suffer, and we see the suffering of another, and then we yeah, connect. and I think that's true. And I think with with that story I shared, as I as I mentioned, I did talk about alcohol towards the end of it, and I don't recall the exact day it went out, but. On the Friday of that week, I was just about to pack up and go home. And one of my team walked in and asked if I had a few moments. And obviously I did, because it was clearly important. And he started out by just saying, I drink too much. And then we looked at each other and then we talked about it. And I remember that conversation went on. I was actually about to run to a train and, and, and get home because I thought I'd be home early on a Friday. Um, and we talked for two hours. And all because I showed my vulnerability, he showed his. We had something common to talk about and we talked. And was this someone like a peer or was this someone who worked for you? Or? No, it was somebody who worked for me. Because oh. I mean, it feels like, uh, again, make some slight generalizations, but in our noisy, busy world, everyone's running for something. You're running for a train, running for this, got to get back for the family, got to get to work, got to get to the next meeting. So it feels like there is a dearth, like a real gap of space for each other, really, because we don't, we don't, we don't really have enough time. So we, or we don't make enough time for really big moments like that. Like you could have been like, oh, great. Yeah, I need to wrap this up in five because I've got to get my train. But for whatever reason, you were like, mm, no, this is important. And you stayed for two hours. Yeah. And, and I think um, it's interesting because we talk about time a lot and we all have the same amount of time. We all have 24 hours in a day. It's then up to us to choose how we allocate that time out. And as business people, we have some time that obviously has to go to our families and to sleeping and things like that. 
but then we're left with a, an amount of time where we're in the office and, and we can do stuff. And I think, you know, we've talked to, not in this podcast yet, but we've talked a lot, you know, together about leadership. And for me, leadership, the traditional view of leadership, obviously, is setting direction and strategy and, and all of that sort of stuff. And, you know, that's obviously important. And in the roles that I've always done, connecting with clients, selling, you know, those are all really key. Um, but equally, delivering programs was was really key. And in that role as a, a leader who delivers big, complex programs, you're expecting the people in your teams to trust you and to give you a lot of their time and emotion and, you know, and, and a lot of effort. And in order for them to do that, they need to trust you and they need to believe that you're there for them. So this will sound, in that particular example, the reason I stayed and talked was because I thought it was the right thing to do at the time, okay. But equally, I thought it would help me, which it did, emotionally it did help me. But also, I knew that if, if I gave that particular individual two hours of my time on a Friday evening, there'll be another time where he would give me an awful lot more. Mm. And and therefore I think as leaders we have to be we, we you know we have to be sensible at how we use our time. Sometimes spending an hour with a member of staff who is struggling is way more important than that status report that you're sending to a client that they're probably not going to read until Monday morning anyway. Mm. Yeah, it, it it feels like Quite often I use the term emotional availability with leaders. So, and I think it's um, because there's time availability and there's emotional availability. So we've we um, ideally we would give some of both, um, but there is only so much time and only so much emotional stuff perhaps we can take on. And and if I'm reading you right, and you can correct me if I'm not, it feels like you have a lot of availability for other people's stuff despite having your own. Yeah, I've always, I've always tried to. Um, Does that come easy or? It's interesting because I always thought it did, but maybe it came at a cost. Um, because I think sometimes you can become too emotionally attached and you can maybe give too much emotion possibly. And I think possibly part of the reason that I ended up in the position I did this this time last year was was because I was too open to share that emotion with people and maybe there is another characteristic of a leader which is to know where that line is Mm -hmm. um, and to be there as much as the person needs without going a little bit too far Mm -hmm. and I think how does you know that how does one know well I I don't don't think you do and I think that's probably the problem um, I think, and maybe this is a way that my experience over the last year is, is going to help me to shape my leadership style going forward. I think in the past, I was always very open, which I think is a good thing. But when I combine that openness, that kind of manic tendency that I had at times, and the, the, the alcohol... Mm that led to situations where I would overshare Mm -hmm. and maybe I would expect that from the other person as well. And sometimes they'd be happy to give that. And sometimes maybe that made them feel uncomfortable. Mm. And 
that is taking a kind of strong leadership trait too far and it then becoming a problem. And I think what I hope I can do going forward, firstly as a result of what's happened, secondly about what I've learned over this year, and then finally by taking that external chemical out of the equation, I hope I'll be able to get it more right. Hmm. Learn where that line is a little bit better than I was in the past. It sounds like, I mean, what I have in my head is like a balance, is that we've got this amazing trait of openness, vulnerability, sharing, which can go, like most things in life, go too far. And, And how do we as leaders know where, how do we sense where almost like the line is, what's appropriate, where that person feels heard, respected, um, able to open up as much as they like, but also not that this hasn't gone so far into their personal life or whatever that they don't know how to pull it back or they don't know how yeah. to then... Because we're all quite different, aren't we? Some some people are like, you know, I would describe myself pretty much as an open book. There's very few questions you can't ask me. <laughs> I'm basically um, very open. And other people I notice... You know, I sense pretty instantly, pretty guarded, uh, and that's okay, isn't it? It's like we yeah, totally. we 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 might gravitate towards different types of people, um, but it's interesting to sense where someone is. What, what what do they want? Yeah, and I I don't think there's an answer. I think like like many things in in leadership, it's unique to the individual, isn't it? And I suppose the skill is trying to judge where that line is. Mm. And I think in the past. And I, I'm going to link this into the addiction side of things. In, in fact, maybe there's two parts to this, actually. Maybe maybe my desire to please was an addiction in its own right. You know, maybe I became addicted to people feeling that they they liked that, that side of me. Maybe that mm. was, in fact, they an addiction. They could come to you. They could, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I don't know. Maybe it was. Um, but equally, I think when we drink... And, and I do want to talk about drinking and things like that, because I think it's something where a lot of us do too much. Mm. And too much, again, is an interesting line, isn't it? Because one, one drink could be too much in a certain yeah. situation. And I remember you did mention this before about alcohol addiction, that that we may not feel we're an alcoholic because we don't, we don't drink in the morning. <laughs> but yeah. actually, we're very yeah. dependent. Yeah, totally. So, so I, I have one exception to this, which is I always used to drink at 11 o'clock if I went to cricket. Um, cause, cause cricket doesn't count. Yeah, of course cricket doesn't count. Yeah. <laughs> Obviously. Um, but other than that, I wouldn't drink in the morning. I'd rarely drink. I, I rarely drank at lunchtime, actually. If we, if I went out for business lunch, I'd have water normally. If I went out with my wife and family, I'd normally drive. So I didn't tend to do that. My drinking was very much in the evening. Um, and that, that classed in my head as acceptable drinking. Um, and sometimes it was, and, but, but often it wasn't. But I think, I guess the important point here for me is that even after one drink, our social inhibitions start to decrease. Um, and maybe our awareness of where the level of that conversation we're having starts, starts to go as well. So, so maybe, maybe a conversation which is starting to get a little bit into someone's personal life Maybe after a drink, it just goes that little bit further and a little mm. bit further. And and not necessarily just from the leader, but from the individual yeah. themselves. And they may wake up the next morning and, you know, only after maybe one or two drinks, they may wake up the next morning and think they overshared. And then they'll feel like working around that leader could be difficult. Mm. Um, and therefore that 
will bring problems into the workplace which shouldn't be there mm. um, so I think that's one side of it but also because I was very happy to open up those relationships with people sometimes that made others feel that they weren't accepted or weren't part of the team so maybe someone who found it a little bit harder to share or mm. someone who didn't maybe have those easy conversations that we could talk about life mm. football or cricket or something like that um, or maybe someone who just culturally or religiously didn't want to share some of those things or just someone who didn't want to share you know sometimes people like that may have felt that me or whoever that leader is is favoring other people so I guess there's a couple of things there where you're driving a dynamic into the workplace which is not constructive mm. does does that make you more aware of like in in your new role like how yeah how close you are with people how much you share and because it sounds what you're again I don't let me lead you but it sounds like what you're going towards is a sense of more equity or equality yeah. in a team where you don't want some people to be really close to you and others to feel left out yeah, I think it's two things. Firstly, it's exactly that. So I want to be more balanced. So I could even bring the, the bipolar part into this and that comment from my boss a long time ago about the roller coaster. It doesn't have to be extremes. I don't have to have some people in the team who I'm super close to and others who I'm very distant from. I need to bring that together. So it's just a lot more stable. So I think that's important. But also I think having the right relationship with the people who are at the right level, who hold the right positions and are maybe in the right age bracket as me as well. So to your peers more? Or? Yeah, I think so. Just slightly different relationships. So I think there's, there's a certain level of relationship you can have with your peer who is a similar age, a similar demographic, has a similar background. And I think it's accepted and acceptable that you, you could have a pretty close and open relationship with them. That may be very different to someone who's two years into their career, maybe just out of university. And, you know, I may look at them as another colleague, but they'll look at me as a leader. A role model. Yeah, role model. Yeah. yeah, someone who's much older than they are and has much more experience and is at a different stage in life. And I think for me, getting better at having those different relationships based on who the individuals are will be important going forward. Mm. And, and with the background of the bipolar disorder that you experience, maybe you could explain a bit for, for listeners to hear. Like, does, does that colour that? Is, that? is that affecting that? Like, wh and also, what is it like to have bipolar? <laughs> yeah, there's a question. Um, so it's an interesting one because I think, I'll talk about bipolar a little bit, now, if that's okay, I think um, up until I was diagnosed, I didn't know I had it. And, and I say that a little bit flippantly, but I, I don't mean it as such. Like we said before, I knew I had depressions, but I, I was totally unaware of mania. And I remember when it was diagnosed, um, my, my wife obviously wanted, wanted to understand a lot more about it. And we, we bought some books and we both did quite a lot of reading. And her first question to me while I was actually in hospital, she came to visit me and, and she asked if I believe it. You know, do I, do I believe the, the diagnosis? And I said no. And You didn't believe it? No, no. 
And the look she gave me was that, oh my God, here we go again, look. Craggy, yeah. And Yeah, exactly. And and I said to her, well, I, I see the depressions, get it, but I, I don't get this mania, really? Uh, and, and she sort of chuckled, an awkward chuckle, and just said, I don't see the depression, you probably hide it. All I see is this insanity, this, this mania. And she gave a couple of examples, <laughs> the nicer examples, maybe, let's say. Um, you know, my the level of work I was doing. Um, I was at the time out till God only knows what time of night, but I was in the gym at six o'clock the next morning because I was, you know, really keen to get and my weight under control. And this is for a set, not set periods, but these is for periods. You're yeah. going into periods of yeah. low and then periods yeah. of high. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, absolutely. And... The time she was specifically talking about had been the preceding six months where now that I know what the symptoms are, it's almost, I use the word comical cautiously because there was nothing funny about it, but to read the symptoms and to map them onto my behaviours during that period of time, it's it's a one-to-one match. It really, really is. Um so now that I have had the diagnosis, now that I look back on it, I can see what a big factor it was in my life. And one of the activities I did in, in hospital was to map out some of those cycles and to pick out times in my life where I was definitely in depression and when I was going through an episode of, of, of mania. And I was looking at the things that happened in each of those phases of life. And and it's interesting to reflect on because the depression ones were horrible for me at the time. But actually, when I talk to people about them who were there, they don't remember them. They they didn't see them, really. Mm. But when when I talk about episodes of mania, they saw them. And a lot of people, I've talked to a lot of close friends about this, and a lot of people have said, we worried about you at that time. We thought something was wrong. And a lot of them are like, why didn't we say something? Um, and I don't, I don't blame anyone else at all for, for any of that. You know, why didn't I say anything? Why didn't I see anything? So in some ways, it's one of those strange diseases, illnesses, whatever we want to call it, conditions, where until I knew I had it, I didn't know I had it. And now I know I had it, I can medicate correctly. And, and therefore, I kind of don't have it again, if mm-hmm. that makes sense. So, so does that mean you don't experience periods of mania now particularly? It, it means that I have the tools that I need to be able to control them. Mm-hmm. So I, I never wanted to take medication. That to me was a red line. I wasn't going to do that. And, and I told my psychiatrist that. And, and he said, you know, quite rightly, he couldn't make me take the medication. But if I didn't then how could he help me? This was going to be hard. Yeah, it was yeah. going to be tricky. So I agreed and I took it. And from week one, I could feel the difference that it made. Mm. It, you know, it alters the way my mind functions. Not, not in a bad way, not in a horrible way. It's nothing like that. But it just feels like it's calming me a little bit. It just feels like it's holding my mind within situations where in the past it may have... Mm exploded out if that makes sense and you said that the mania was kind of epitomized by like 
lots of spending, lots yeah. of just working long hours. In it. So, so it's just just everything at full speed. Would that yeah. be fair? Or full? yeah, yeah, everything at full speed. Yeah. Um, I remember, you know, certain situations. It was just like bright light. It was just everything at the yeah, just everything at full speed. It, and and what no did sleep. What it feel like? Well, it felt great. <laughs> like, and this is one of the hard things about being diagnosed with something like this because you. I mean, I'm fortunate that my my diagnosis isn't by any stretch the most serious, um, and the drugs that I'm taking are by no means the most the strongest drugs. Um, sometimes, if if the diagnosis was more serious and the drugs were more powerful, it would almost dull those senses a lot more than it does. And and I think many people who try and take those drugs feel they feel numbness, they feel nothingness to some degree. And you've moved from this world of excitement into this world of boredom. And and that's really difficult to handle. I think in my case, I'm quite lucky because I did love the excitement of the world before. But it became so clear to me that that was causing me and others damage. Mm. And therefore, leaving it behind isn't so painful Hmm. and I also think given my stage in life and my age I guess actually moving from that lifestyle into a more calm grown-up let's say uh, approach to life I think is a good thing and therefore I'm okay with it so I mean going going back to those those tools that I have the medication is important the therapy is important because it means that so you have ongoing therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. So I have um, I have a range of different therapy, I guess. I, I have my psychiatrist. I have my formal one-to-one therapist. But I'm also part of a number of support groups. So I do go to AA. Um, I know we're not really supposed to say that, but I think it's important to share that. Um, and I enjoy doing that. I do that once or twice a week. And I'm also a member of a bipolar support group, which I do once a month. Uh, and each one of those is is important in its own right. You know, the psychiatrist provides the medical input that I need. The therapist is helping to unlock some things maybe from the past and teach me how to handle situations going forward. And then the support groups are brilliant in their own right as well because you sit in a room with people who've been through what you've, you've been through. Right, common you know? humanity. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, so, I think, and, and very similar. Yeah, I totally. And, and I think the alcohol one's obvious, right? And it's, it's funny. Again, funny is the wrong word. But, you know, we all tell our story and we all realise it's kind of the same story. Mm. And then you can relate to what everyone says. Everyone's a bit different, but broadly it's the same story. The bipolar one was, was harder because I was actually scared to walk into that one. It was really daunting. I didn't know what I was going to face. And I kind of didn't know what the point was, if that makes sense. But having done a couple of them now, it's, it's really clear because when you hear people describe something they went through, which was so close to the feelings of the thing I went through, it kind of gives you comfort mm. and it makes you, to some degree, normalise yeah. something. I mean, personally, I find it very validating. Like It's like, yeah. it's that thing you experience is, is real and someone else is experiencing, they're saying it's real. It's not this thing that I've told myself or like I've just dreamt up badly or like yeah <laughs> dreamt right. up or I just exactly. wasn't not good enough or something it's actually yeah. it's something you know I mean at least through I mean my experience is mainly with depression and anxiety and the spaces 
I've spoken about it the most are in mindfulness yeah. group environments or in therapy. Yeah. Um, but the group environments, and I'm probably, I don't, I don't know what your group environments are like, but the groups I've been part of in the past, there's very little commentary on what you're saying. So, so you will have only a conversation with like the, the, the facilitator in the room, the teacher and, um, and people are not going to like cross talk. There's no cross talk. So you yeah. don't have someone yeah. like going, oh, like me, just like that thing you went through, I'm the same. Because that kind of interrupts your space, doesn't it? When yeah. someone starts trampling over your, your words or maybe you haven't finished explaining it yet and they're misinterpreting. So you need the space to be held by someone who can allow the conversation to move around and for the person to feel feel safe in explaining what they're explaining yeah and and it's almost hard to explain i think if you haven't had that if you haven't been facilitated in an environment where you felt what i would call held by a facilitator and that facilitator is very very skillful usually and if someone starts behaving in a way that isn't appropriate that will be nipped in the bud yeah. very quickly and i think so I, I do two types of therapy i guess one is is exactly that that kind of facilitated therapist type thing but I also, some of the addiction meetings I go to are kind of almost self-facilitated by the group, but with a set of guidelines. So you can share, but you can't cross-share. Right. So it's a similar concept yes. where you can tell your story and people can listen to your story and learn from it, but it's not their role to try and fix it. To comment, it's, fix it. Yeah, yeah, to comment. Yeah. So that's... Yeah, I mean, that, that's really interesting. And actually, just, just going back to the, the question, the bipolar question, we talked a little bit about the mania. The harder, and this is interesting because it's the opposite of what I was saying before. Now that I understand the mania and I've got the medication to help, I can spot when things are starting to happen. So I do spend time, in the early days, I kept what I, what's called a mood diary. Um, and then you, you kind of rated how you were every day on, on a number of scales and you plotted it on a graph so you could see when things were starting to escalate and then you could do something about it now I don't do that anymore it became I guess it was part of me who didn't want to live my life based around mood and introspection addiction. kind yeah, of thing in a way yeah exactly that's something right something I so, think about yeah so I didn't I got to the point where I didn't really want to start and finish every day reminding myself about addiction and bipolar so yeah. I kind of moved away a little bit from doing that, but but I reflect. You know, if I'm walking to the station or something like that, I'll just think about what I've been doing that week. And sometimes I'll start to spot some of those characteristics coming back in again. So actually, I did that this morning. I noticed that last last week um, was was half to, was it was Easter holiday. Sorry, so my wife and kids had been away for a little bit, um, and I'd realised that some of my actions has started to slip back into things I had to be careful of. And I also noticed I set up a target of coming to the office two to three times a week. I noticed I've been in four times a week and it's starting to creep up. And because I now know I can start to nip that in the bud. So I think that helpful. Depression's in some ways a bit harder. So my medication at the moment isn't dealing with that side of things. That's not what it's intended to do um, and the problem with depression is once you're in it even if you know you're in it by definition it's quite hard to get yourself out of it so I think 
that's going to be the next thing that I need to spend some time with both the psychiatrist and the, the therapist is working on whether there is a medication that I need to add, which is a possibility, and equally whether there's some more techniques that I need to work in that help me handle those situations where I'm not in a good place. Mm, careful, you'll get me doing the mindfulness spiel. <laughs> yes. Um, but um, but no, in all, in all seriousness, um, mindfulness-based cognitive therapy has been proven to halve relapse rates into depression for those with two or more episodes. Yeah. And that's from research from NICE, um, National Institute for Clinical Excellence. So it's proved to be at least as effective as antidepressants. Yeah. So it, it is interesting... Um, as a whole discipline but that's a whole other podcast <laughs> but no but it's a, it's a very good point you make yeah. and, and I think that's the reason we I say we um, between me and the, the psychiatrist I think the reason we've not gone down that route yet is because we want to see how all of the other right. tools work what's available first. yes yeah. and you know we were saying before we started actually mindfulness is something that I need to spend a lot more time working on it's something I've struggled with to be honest and Part of that's probably because there's just too much going on at the moment. And at the moment, I've kind of parked it in that sort of... Yeah, but it sounds like you're doing a lot of different things So it in this area. And it can be that, you know, at least I've experienced that we can, we can do too too much on this stuff as well. So it has to be in balance as well, doesn't it? So yeah, um, Completely, yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been an amazing interview. I mean, I wonder if there's any sort of final thoughts you'd like to leave us with in terms of... Um, where you're how you're because it sounds like you have a huge amount of self-awareness now so in the role you're in now how that applies to yourself as a leader or or even just how you want to look after yourself going forward like what what feels right yeah so I think one thing that and I didn't know any of this at the time right I think taking a year out has been really important so Taking a year, at the time I thought it was going to be two weeks in a hospital and then back on it again. You know, what turned out to be two and a half months in hospital was really important. But he, And then when I came out, I thought, oh, probably another month or two. But it was a lot more than that. Um, I think taking that whole year, learning a lot more about myself, um, spending time in the gym, spending time in therapy, working on my diet, because that, that was an interesting one as well. You know, I've been through years of eating appallingly um my weight had ballooned but then i lost i lost six stone while drinking um and to do that you have to cut everything else out completely really so i was living on an appalling diet um so that needed to be sorted out um and also when you when you start taking medication you stop drinking you start craving other things like biscuits chocolate cake sugar oh sugar. that addiction yeah yeah, yeah you know, it's a real, real deal <laughs> so you know so spending a year trying to get all of that in balance i think was quite important and now you know my target for the next year i think is to stabilize um you know i was i was on a, a call the other day and i was sat in my office at home playing with what are called sobriety tokens so i get a chip for a month that i, I don't drink up to a year and i was playing with those while I was doing this call, which I think was probably quite irritating for the people who I was talking to. But it, it made me think that actually, over the next year, that is more important to me. You know, getting that stabilised, 
while I was off, I, I picked up some more things around the school. I'm running a, a school trip later this year to climb um, Scarfell Pike as a, a sort of fundraising activity for mm. a chunk of school kids and parents. Um, I want to be around school more. You know, I'm a, I'm a father. You know, that's, that should be mm. the most important thing. You have a big job, but yeah, your yeah, family is becoming more important completely. in terms of how you spend your time. Yeah, completely. You know, yeah, I, I've got lots of work to do, but doesn't everyone, you know? So I need to be able to take them to school once, twice, three times a week. I need to be able to pick them up. I need to go and watch a netball match, a hockey match, a cricket match. Um, so working out what the new me and the new world for me looks like, I think is really important. And it's really important to me that I don't just fall back into what I did before, first in the office, last out of the office, five days a week. That That isn't what life's about. I, I don't believe anymore. And therefore that's the next year, I think. And, and how will that affect my leadership style? Well, we'll have to see, I guess. And I think it, it's funny, actually, I'll, I'll mention this as we're getting towards the end, but talking to you about this is quite always quite amusing because obviously not all the listeners know this, but your partner worked with me for me for many years. And I'm sure she's uh, moaned or chatted or whatever we want to say about me in the past. So in a funny way, you may be known more about <laughs> I don't right? think she's moaned at all. <laughs> I think what she said was that you were always someone who could really connect very deeply with yeah. um, with their team in a way that she didn't really see very much. And that was really powerful because you took time for everybody. You listened to them, got to know them, you connected with them and were able, and she felt very motivated around you. So that is, in a way, your superpower. So I, I hope, hope so. I hope that in your world of balance, which you're that you that you don't don't lose that. It doesn't sound like you will, but it it sounds like this is a path of navigating that that new normal. Yeah, and I think I think that's right. We talked about the new normal through the pandemic, obviously, and that was sort of thrown upon us. For me, and it was everyone. For me, that term now has completely new significance. What is the new normal going to look like? And the reason I don't specifically answer the question is because I simply don't know. Don't know, yeah. So we'll have to see. We'll see if this goes and maybe this will, will tee us up for a part two in maybe. a year or so time. Yeah. Maybe. Brilliant. Okay, thanks so much, Adam. Thank you. Thank you so much for that interview, Adam. I really enjoyed how open you are about your journey of navigating your future leadership, considering everything you've been through along the way. And however subtly, it can be really tempting for us to act like we've all got it figured out. But the more of us who talk about it not having it figured out, the more we can learn about the process of recovery, for example. You've been listening to The Conscious Leaders podcast, and I'm Ruth Renger. I want to facilitate honest conversations with great people leaders so you can learn from their highs and lows and take away sustainable practices and behaviours you can implement straight away. For free practical advice on how to build a calm, collaborative and productive workplace, as well as info on my number one best-selling book, Next Level Leadership, visit consciousleaders.org.uk.